Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Since returning to America in full Theravada robes, I'm every bit as much of an oddity in my homeland as I was in Myanmar, but for a different reason. Although I spend most of my time in a monastery, I often run an errand, browse a bookstore, accept meal invitations in restaurants, either alone with other monks or most commonly with an American or Burmese lay people. Pick someone up at the airport, drive in to teach a class or to accept an invitation as a guest speaker at someone else's class, go to a doctor's or someone else's appointment. Sometimes a stranger approaches me with a question, generally an American interested in Buddhism, or very rarely simply raises his hands in Anjali as they walk past. One day when I was in Canada, a young man asked me if I had just been to a toga party. Another young man in Austin asked me if I was a real monk. Answering in the affirmative, he then asked me if for a word of wisdom, I proffered, keep your life simple. He seemed very pleased with this advice. On another occasion, a woman with a little girl in tow ran up to Ashin Ariadama and me and began to relate, as her daughter peered out shyly from behind her leg, how her daughter had seen a show on TV and had since then been fascinated by monks. Throughout America, monasteries were springing up like weeds, not because monks were ordaining like dandelions, rather because more and more Asian Buddhists were arriving than seeking out monasteries, the natural center of Asian community life as well as Buddhist religious life, and failing to find them. This was certainly true of the Burmese communities in America. Fed with a steady flood of refugees and a mere trickle of monastics, since Asian youth already living or born in America were disinclined to take up the monastic life against the backdrop of the alluring and distracting tinsel and lights of American popular soap operatic culture. There was instead an effort to recruit monastics from Asia, rare in the West as hen's teeth. Accordingly, within 13 days of arriving in Austin, I was northward bound towards St. Paul, Minnesota, where I would be resident for seven months at the Sitagu Dhammawihara in the suburb of Maplewood, home to two of the exotic pilgrims with whom I had traveled to Myanmar over a year before. The normal resident monk in this chilly land was Ashin Nayaka, who, all but dissertation and scholarly in appearance, had needed to meet with his professors for about three months in India. 
As I met Ong Ko at the airport, I was already impressed by the Nordic population of this northern land, lumbering Vikings under baseball caps, fair of skin, hair, and eyes, just like me, but without the robes. Upon my arrival in Maplewood, I met the only Westerner who regularly frequented this monastery, who had come especially because she had heard only that a new monk was about to arrive. As I entered, she performed the by now thoroughly familiar double take and said, You're white! I noticed that, too. The monastery was what I expected, like many monasteries in the Wild West of Buddhism. A ranch house, a large, single-family dwelling with ample meeting space in a converted garage, and still more in a large basement. Quite cozy. Placing an American monk as an only monk into this monastery, into such a sensitive and central role in a Burmese community, a monk who is still unfamiliar with many points of Burmese culture, unable to speak the Burmese language, that for many of the members of the community was the only available means of interlocution, unsure of the many obscure social functions expected of Burmese monks, and still trying to learn the basic Pali chants and ritual observances, seemed to me decidedly ill-advised. One day I would happen to have the opportunity to talk with a young Catholic student at St. John's University who would inform me that Catholic churches were often much the same, but with an all-American congregation supported by, for instance, a Costa Rican priest. In any case, I would be supported and treated with the utmost respect and appreciation and well cared for throughout my tenure and through my gradual negotiation of a new learning curve. Before I left Myanmar, Ashin Panyasiha had once admonished me, When you go back to America, you should continue to do alms rounds. I remarked, I don't think you can do alms rounds in the States. Nobody will know what I'm doing. I did. Indeed, Ashin Panyasiha had lived in America for one and a half years, where he had attended Vanderbilt University in Nashville. He explained he had been determined to walk for alms no matter where he lived because of the Buddha's injunction. He described how he had printed up flyers and distributed them through his neighborhood to head off people's bewilderedness and how he ended up with many new students of Buddhism. In a lot of places in America, including Austin, I could be arrested for begging. I wouldn't have minded being arrested. I could teach Buddhism in jail. Woo, Ashin Panyasiha argued an awfully strong case. The very same alms bowl that I had used in Myanmar was now sitting on my shelf in Maplewood. Nonetheless, I had trouble picturing myself seeking alms on County Road C, walking along the edge of the road 
dumbfounding the inhabitants of cars as they flashed past, and gaining little notice from the neighbors, all of whose houses stood well back from the road. What I pictured seemed hardly promising for alms, nor even of tangible human contact. That is, unless I just happened to pass the right house at the right moment. Once while on a long walk, a swift bicycle approached me from behind, passed and screeched to a halt, ejecting a dark-haired woman who, with a sidewards toss of the bike, dropped to the ground and bowed at my feet. It turned out she was from Laos, married to an American, had been washing dishes in her kitchen, and had happened to glance up to see the very last thing she had ever expected in Maplewood walk by. She had dashed out the door, jumped on her daughter's bicycle, and hastened after me. Had I instead been walking by with an alms bowl in hand, at that moment I would undoubtedly have attained to leftover waffles, bear mush, or even better. No, I had an alms planned in mind that left little to chance. This was inspired secondhand from an American nun I had heard of who had started collecting alms in Colorado at a farmer's market. Her plan was brilliant at precisely such a place or found the ideal set of circumstances to induce the spontaneous whim that would cast Nordic inhibition aside to participate in a rite over twice as ancient as Viking plunder. The circumstances were, first, a wide variety of amiable people in a relaxed and interactive frame of mind, and second, food close at hand, available for purchase. I phoned the director of the farmer's market in Maplewood and procured permission to walk barefooted, bowl in hand, robes formally adjusted over both shoulders, past the booths. I also invited the four monks from the local Karen Monastery in St. Paul to participate and a few members of our community to bring some food to offer to prime the pump that would then suck in broader participation. The Karen monks, never having expected to go for alms round in America, a bit apprehensive about the response they would invoke, and of less than Nordic stature, suggested we forego the normal monastic custom of queuing up according to ordination date and, much like novices or ducklings, line up according to height, tallest first. We had a number of glitches the Burmese recruited to prime the pump were, as I should have anticipated, too generous to provide a reasonable example for emulation. They handed us what appeared to be entire grocery bags of food, which gave the row of monks the appearance of a kind of human shopping cart, and hardly in need of still further almsgiving. Luckily, in subsequent weeks, fewer members of the Burmese community showed up, but then relatively few of the shoppers had 
any idea why grown bald men in dresses were playing choo-choo in the middle of their shopping experience. However, an occasional shopper or merchant would figure it out. Once an Oriental woman, who presumably had not seen an alms round in many years, was thrilled to have her lanky grandson drop an offering into each of our bowls. A vendor once gave us little bottles of honey. We were, week after week, making slow headway when suddenly the very short Minnesota farmer's market season came to a chilly end. I once knew someone who was very much a man like most on the other side of the looking glass. In his 60s, he took his own life because in life he had failed to become the person he wanted to be. He was like the monkey whose hand is caught in a coconut trap because he will not release his grasp of the banana therein. Why couldn't he have simply given up the life that had come to a dead end, move in with me and take up the life that gives me so much satisfaction? A podcaster. No, someone willing to chuck it all and find a home on this side of the looking glass. He did not realize, and there was no way I could easily explain, that there was a looking glass one could pass through where everything is backward. On this side of the looking glass world, seclusion turns out to be open-heartedness. Discipline takes on the taste of liberation. Reflection manifests as not thinking. Resolve becomes nothing more than contentment with where one is. Being no one is success, and personal well-being is giving to others. On this side, it is peaceful and still. The sun shines, and a gentle breeze whispers in the leaves. I'm going to end my personal story here. I hope you found it useful. During the next weeks, I'm going to talk once more about meditation. Not to teach meditation per se. There are abundant teachers available, and it's good to have a personal teacher. But to explain meditation as best as I can figure it out. What is its purpose? How does it work? What do all these words mean? Foreign words like jhana, vipassana, samatha, samadhi. Satipatthana, and English words like mindfulness and concentration. I gave a lot of talks on this topic last year in this podcast under the heading Rethinking the Satipatthana. Since then, I've done a lot more rethinking and research and meditating. I'll talk on six topics, largely independently, meaning you can miss a topic and pick it up later. The first topic is how did mindfulness get mislabeled? The second is the Satipatthana method. The third is the miracle of Samadhi. The fourth is a backroad tour of the Satipatthana. The fifth is primary analysis of Satipatthana. And the sixth is Samatha Vipassana. The titles have a lot of Pali words, so you might not know what I'm talking about. 
In brief, Satipatthana is contemplation to gain wisdom and insight. Samadhi is meditation, being super still. And Samatha Vipassana is putting them together. I'll give about three talks on each of these topics. So, until next week. Thank you.